Welcome to The Legal Lowdown. I'm your host, Diana Baudet. Joining me today are New York education attorneys, Paul O'Neill and Jamie Fernand, to talk about COVID-19 testing and vaccination requirements for New York charter schools. We're now in early spring 2021. Lots of things have changed and been updated. So this is meant to bring us up to speed with what is happening at this point in time um, in terms of all things vaccine and COVID-19 testing for students, staff, and administration. Welcome to the podcast, Paul and Jamie. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So we'll dive right in. I understand that, Paul, you'll kind of be doing the heavy lifting on testing and Jamie will be doing the same for vaccinations. So we'll get started. And uh, my first question out the gate is, what are the most important considerations that schools are dealing with relating to COVID-19 testing and vaccination? And actually, you both can take that one, too. I will. Thank you, Diana. Uh, There are really two separate areas, as you suggest. There's testing for illness. And then there's vaccination to prevent illness. And for each area, schools need to consider what is okay, one, for staff, and two, for students. We're also going to address some special education considerations which cross into this area, but those are always tricky as well. So that, that I think, is the backdrop. Okay. So what are the rules right now that New York has established for COVID-19 testing? Well, in order to protect public health in the neighborhoods where the schools are located, state and city authorities mandate that a certain percentage of everybody who would be in the school community, so staff and students together, be tested uh, depending on the threat level in that particular area. So we've assigned this color coding system where if you're in an area that's yellow, that's a heightened area of infection, whereas if you're a red area, that's a much heightened area of infection. And so the testing is keyed into that distinction. Now, it's important to note that that's testing a certain percentage of the people who are in the school. And it's not designed to tell you what the threat level is in the school for the purposes of protecting the school. It's mainly a way to gauge what the impact on the hospital capacity will be in that particular community. So you're trying to use this as an indicator of how much COVID we're seeing in a particular neighborhood. And we get that by this percentage. So we are doing COVID testing to trigger that. If we're talking about doing COVID testing to ensure that a particular school's environment is safe, that's different. We'll talk about that too. So one thing that students need to consider and parents need to consider when students are traveling, either on a, you know, sometime a school holiday or just for normal travel, which something hasn't really come up until now when, when people are traveling more in the country than ever before, is that there is a requirement to quarantine and to test students in New York prior to returning to school. That use that requirement has changed. It used to be, at least in New York, uh, if you were traveling to a number of different states other than the states that are right connected to New York, you'd have to quarantine and test. Now the requirement has been updated. I think it was changed just now, and I think it was starting April 1st, quarantine and testing is no longer required for asymptomatic domestic travelers. So anyone that were to come to going to New York schools that have no symptoms do not need to quarantine and test. But if you're coming from international travel, the requirement 
stays the same. You still need to quarantine consistent with the CDC recommendations and any local health officials recommendations. Um, you need to quarantine and then test prior to entering a school building. So I think that's, that's an important distinction and, and very recent update to note. If students are symptomatic, of course, they should stay home and test and quarantine. But for asymptomatic travelers that are traveling within the United States, they're no longer required in New York to quarantine and test prior to returning to school. Okay. And that applies to students and staff members or just students? That is just pertaining to students. I think staff members, they could have that same policy, but staff members could also have a more aggressive policy depending on each individual school. Okay. Great. This is an update from the New York Department of Health. Okay. Can New York charter schools elect to require all staff members to be tested for the virus in order to come to work? Well, Jamie was just getting at this, but the answer to that is yes. Uh, They can require them to show evidence of a negative test, for example. Despite that fact, they would have to allow for reasonable accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And there's no change there. That's what that's what we've been dealing with throughout the pandemic and is, is always the case. If someone has a, a condition, a health condition that would impact their ability to meet that standard, you would have to listen to them and try to make an accommodation. And while schools are still engaging in remote instruction, even if that's just part of what they're doing, and we would call that a hybrid structure where some kids are and some staff are back and some are not, where we still have that option, uh, schools should allow it to, to, should allow staff members who will not agree to a test or who, who need an accommodation to participate remotely because that's within their capability to do. But that may not be so easy for every staff position. If your job requires you to be there, the best example is a custodian. If your job is a custodian at a school, at a charter school, for example, you can't say, well, I have these these ADA concerns and I need to do that from home because you can't clean the school from home. And it's also worth keeping in mind that it's unlikely that we're going to say, let's say in the new school year in the fall, it's unlikely that everyone's going to be offering a remote option to everybody. And if that's no longer an option, then it may be that in order to do your duties as a teacher, let's say, or an administrator in a school, that there really isn't a way you can do that remotely. And so this is a question that's going to evolve as this always evolving circumstance keeps evolving. Okay. Okay. And can you give an update and let us know whether or not charter schools can or already are electing to require testing of all students in order to attend in-person classes? Sure. This is trickier in general and has changed a fair amount. Jamie mentioned before that the, the travel rules have changed as of the beginning of April. And in February, we saw some important changes here. So first of all, it may depend where you live in New York State as to what the rule is for whether you can require testing of all students in order to attend classes. We did a presentation not too long ago where we said that we don't see any authorities that say that you can get in the way of this. But on the 16th of February, the New York State Education Department issued guidance that appears to forbid schools from requiring COVID-19 testing in order for a student to attend classes in person or to participate in school sports. So just to recap what I just said two seconds ago, the guidance said you can't make a kid go remote just because they won't submit to the testing. You have to to allow them to participate. But almost as soon as that guidance came out, the New York City Department of Education started pushing back, saying that 
its process, which involves requiring parents to consent to being tested, whether or not they immediately test them or not, but require you to fill out a form if you're going to go to a New York City public school. They said that they think that's lawful. And the day after the guidance came out on the 16th from the state, the state issued new revised guidance. And the new revised guidance said that schools can't, this is repeating what the first guidance said, and I'm going to add something to the end. So it says that schools can't require testing or consent to testing as a prerequisite for in-person attendance unless local health officials direct otherwise. And it doesn't seem like maybe that's the most important clause, but it is because essentially the New York City folks were saying local New York City health officials think that our proposal, our way of handling this is okay, where we require parents to consent in order to, to allow the kids to attend in person. Now, to my knowledge, the state has not pushed back on New York City saying that. And to my knowledge, New York City has not given any details about what local health officials have said. They just say that that's what's going on. And so that has been left. It's very unusual to see guidance come out on one day and revised guidance come out on the second day. That's very unusual. So clearly there's a pushback back and forth. And so I think the takeaway from that for charter schools in New York City is that, well, if it's if the local health officials in New York City say that it's okay to require that testing or require them to um, show that they have, have had the testing in order to attend in person, then that's okay. But if you're in Rochester or Yonkers or Schenectady, I think you would have to find out if local health officials are seen to have said something similar is okay. And we, we can't speak to that here, but people should look at that. That sounds very complicated. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it boils down to something very simple, which is, can you require them to get tested, yes or no? And the the answer in New York City seems to be, yes, you can require that. And the answer outside of New York City is, only if your local officials allow for that. And by the way, one of the things that seems to have been driving this set of rules is the sports element, Mm. that kids have to be allowed to participate in school sports. And so for some places, that's as big an issue as it is whether they can attend in person. Okay. So how are you advising schools around this? Well, we're saying the words that I just said, for one thing, and and the advice has changed, to be honest with you. I mean, I mentioned that we had done a presentation not too terribly long ago where we said, yeah, we don't really know of any authorities that say that you can't require this testing if you want to. And I think that schools are in different places as to their interest level in doing this. There are a lot of schools that are not interested in doing this testing, but the in-person model, and many schools are changing their approach to that, or evolving their approach to that, the more these, these issues are coming up. I think as schools move towards more of an in-person model 100% of the time, then we're going to either see more mandatory testing if needed. If you are going to do the testing, if you are going to say, all right, we will run a New York City charter school and we, we can exclude kids from in-person testing if they refuse to take part in the test. Schools that are interested in requiring students to be tested in order to attend in person should go about that carefully. And I have a couple of suggestions as to how they would want to do that. One, they should establish explicit written policy that is clear and non-discriminatory and shared widely. Two, they should allow for families to push back and to indicate any health concerns that they have about testing. Because remember, we talked about the ADA before. You always want to be sensitive to the idea that maybe a particular student has a condition that would make that difficult. 
Three, students with medical conditions or disabilities in particular may need accommodations that reflect their IEPs, or Section 504 plans, or whatever their circumstances are. And then just finally, while a remote option exists, students who refuse that testing can opt out and be remote. And that will continue as long as those remote options exist. And we don't know exactly what that will be. And it's going to depend on the school as to what its approach is. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be an interesting thing to watch for the fall, um, how that evolves, whether remote is offered. And I, I'm not sure if in New York you're seeing the same thing, but it seems like hybrid for many schools, it's being encouraged to uh, move away from offering hybrid any longer and either be fully in-person or fully remote. And it'll be interesting to see if that's sort of how they track for next year as well. We are all going to learn as it goes. And that has been the pattern. It's certainly been the pattern all along that every two months or so, we're looking at something else. Yeah. All right. So I'd love to switch to vaccinations, Jamie, um, and kind of talk through some of these same issues. But on the vaccine side, will New York State mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for schools? It's a good question. And it's not an easy question to answer. And I guess I'd want to separate it a little between students and staff members, because there are two different pieces to it and whether or not you're going to require staff to get a vaccination in order to continue to be employed or whether or not you're going to require students to receive a vaccination. I mean, right now, students aren't, at least in the elementary school level, aren't even eligible for it. And in New York, the numbers, um, the ages keep changing. I think 16 and up just changed, uh, I think, this week in New York. Anyone 16 or up, they don't have to be a student or not, can get a vaccination, assuming that there's, they are able to get an appointment. That is very, very recent. So I do know some people in New York that are getting it. Schools right now are not requiring it, but I do know that local private facilities are starting to require it, or at least letting people know that in the fall they're going to require it. That that's not school specific. That would be like a, you know, a dance duty or something like that. But um, just to take a step back, when you're thinking about immunization and you, you look to usually the state rules apply. And each state has somewhat of a different approach to immunization of students. New York has a particularly more of an aggressive standpoint about vaccinations and immunizations. And they require students that are going to attend public school to be immunized you know, with a variety of different things. The list does not currently include COVID-19. I do believe that COVID-19 is going to be on that list whether or not that's going to be next school year or the following year, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. But the New York State Health Guidance would be the one that you're looking at right now. They do require students even that are attending remote learning to be up to date on their vaccinations. They're going to extend that a couple of times, and I don't know if they're continuing to, to extend that, but they are continuing to ask schools to make sure that students are vaccinated. I think it's just, it's, it's interesting to know, you know, just the backdrop for that, but some states allow students to seek an exemption from vaccinations based on religious reasons or philosophical exemptions. But New York is not one of those states. New York is one of the few states that does not allow immunization exemptions for religious reasons or philosophical reasons. There was a big outbreak in 2019 from measles, which the CDC basically declared eliminated in 2000 based on the low spread and the effectiveness of the measles immunization. 
But then um, what happens is somebody came back from visiting abroad and was not vaccinated and brought measles back with him. I think he was, this happened in September 30th, 2018. He comes back to New York City with a, with a case of measles and very quickly measles spreads within his, that population and the surrounding populations. And that ends up resulting in 600, close to 700 cases of measles in New York within six, seven months of, of that time and a huge cost, cost of you know sickness and also a financial implication to the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. I think it was 8.4 million, if I, if I get that right. And then after that point, Cuomo, who's governor then, he passed a law in New York eliminating religious exemptions to immunizations, which I think is, is important because I think that people are wary of the COVID vaccine because it's, you know, it's a new vaccine. And I, I do think that should the, should the state or local health departments or the school move towards requiring COVID-19 immunizations that there are parents that maybe beforehand would always go ahead and just do with immunizations that are required. They might think, you know what I'm gonna say, I don't wanna do this for religious reasons or for philosophical reasons, but I don't think they're gonna be allowed to just based on the history in New York. There's always a medical exemption um, that would apply that if somebody some, for some reason getting a vaccination would hurt you medically, you should be allowed to not get that vaccination and still come to school. But I don't think that's not going to be the case in New York. Okay. Curious out of, of your opinion on whether or not you think that that's going to affect numbers of students enrolled if a school decides to require vaccination for COVID. But COVID is so new. I know a lot of parents are very concerned about giving kids under 16 the vaccine. Do you think schools will be forced to offer a remote option for those kids that don't want that vaccine or their parents that don't want them to have it? I think it's going to really depend on the local authorities and the local government. I think that in some cases that actually having the vaccine and having that requirement would be more of an incentive for people to bring their their kids to school. As as we're, we're learning over time, school is one of the safest places that you could be. The spread of transmission within the schools is so low compared to the spread that it seems to be happening in the community at large. But I think the opposite could be true, that requiring staff to be vaccinated and requiring students to be vaccinated might actually result in parents feeling safer with their child in school. But, I, you know, as, as Paul mentioned, I don't know how long schools will be offering a remote option. There's definitely, there seems to be a movement towards getting students in person more. I think that there's been a lot of educators that believe and doctors and uh, mental health professionals that believe that being in school is definitely the best thing for the students and having them home has, you know, there's been huge rises in mental illness and depression and a huge loss of learning that is accredited to the remote setting. So I don't know how much longer that's that's going to be offered. But I guess moving you know, closer to your question of like whether or not vaccines are going to be mandated, I do think that there is something that we need you know, to talk about. And I wish that I had a straight answer for, for this, but the, right now the vaccines, um, the three different vaccines that are authorized in the United States are all authorized under something called the emergency youth authorization. And that is, it's illegal, it gets a little bit too like legal ease, but that basically um, means that the FDA granted it, um, the emergency youth authorization to individuals during this time, but they haven't given them the full license approval that would happen generally over a longer period of time. Um, 
And when something is in the emergency use authorization period, patients or anyone that's taking it has to know that taking that vaccination is optional. I just want to pause on that because the word optional and voluntarily is something that all anybody taking the vaccine needs to be told about. And it's kind of, it's new ground. I mean, this is something that the FDA has never really done before. They haven't before granted an EUA to the entire population. And so there's no actual perfect precedent here for me to say, okay, this is how it's going to play out. There are certainly employers that are thinking about and have even started to mandate a vaccination, uh, but it's unclear how that's going to uphold in court. The mandates are obviously designed to help public health and safety. And I think the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has guidance that has indicated that they don't specifically endorse a mandatory vaccine, but at the same time, they haven't said that it's not okay. And they do, you know, they have a couple of different considerations that you should think about if an employer is going to be putting an, a mandatory vaccination policy in place. But I think that you should just be mindful that there might be legal challenges there. And I just want to pause for a second, just as we talked about in this, the beginning of this presentation, this is just so cutting edge that there's, there are some small employers that are doing it. I'm not aware of a New York State school that is mandating it. I am aware, I don't know, um, that the Los Angeles School District, which I think I believe is like the second largest school district in the United States, is requiring their staff to be um, vaccinated there, at least to con- in order to receive continued employment. Let me just jump in and say, I'll characterize what I think you're saying, is that because the FDA has only granted provisional approval for these drugs, it's not okay for an employer to say, got to get vaccinated or you can't work here. You have to you have to pull back from that and give people options until such time as the vaccinations get complete approval. And at that point, people will have more of an ability to do that as employers. I was talking the other day to one of the authorizers, the charter school authorizers in New York. And he said to me that he believes that there are schools that are getting ready to say everybody needs to be vaccinated or else they can't work here. Now that would be, you know, in the future when that's more feasible to say. But um, I think it may reflect that there is maybe not a complete understanding about the limitations on what it means to uh, have FDA partial approval or provisional approval. Right. And I think that's exactly right. I can't say it is absolutely prohibited for a school to put together a COVID-19 mandatory vaccination policy. I can't say that because it's just too much up in the air. I I could see that there's legal challenge. I mean, as I said, Los Angeles school district has basically said you need to be vaccinated. Already there is a challenge to that. Already there are people challenging that mandate and saying that, you know, this is violates my independence, this violates public health, you know, you can't require me to take something that is still under the emergency youth authorization. You know, as a lawyer, you always want to have these clear lines and say, this is allowed, this is not allowed. I I can point to a couple of different court cases where this is already being challenged. And there are definitely schools that are going to have a more aggressive stance on this. And they're they're going to say, "We're, we're willing to take the chance. We're willing to put together a policy on this. And have it be a fair policy. And, if, and we could talk a little bit about what should be in the, the policy if you are going to have a COVID-19 policy, if you want to get into that. But I, it's not. It's just not so clear. And I wish it was. And I think it will be clearer once the FDA gives it the green light, hopefully, 
the earliest that I heard was de December of 2021 is when they were looking to green light though, but that, that may have shifted. You know, and I would think another issue is you couldn't make it mandatory or required until everyone's eligible. And I don't know where New York State is. I know in the state that I'm in, everyone's not eligible for a vaccine yet. Well, it's two things to that. Everybody, all throughout the United States, all school employees, K through 12, are eligible. So that's nationwide. So anybody that works within a school district should be allowed to, should be eligible, whether or not they can find a vaccination appointment is another question. But in New York, the age just keeps dropping. Right now we're at 16. So every anybody 16 and up is eligible if they could get an appointment. And, and from what I'm hearing, by the start of next school year, that age is probably going to be 12 and up, if not younger. So I do believe within the next school year that all, you know, assuming that the, the clinical trials keep going well, that all students will be eligible to receive a vaccination. Okay. If schools do opt to come up with a COVID vaccination policy, Jamie, what should that look like? It's a good question. And, you know, similar to any other policy that you're creating in an employment context, you want to be mindful that any policy that you have is fair and non-discriminatory. You know, you have to, if, if you're going to require the flu shot because of a particularly high flu outbreak, you want to, you know, make sure that that policy is targeted. If you're requiring a vaccination policy, I would first make sure that a couple of things, that you make sure that the vaccine mandate is actually is job related and based on reliable objective criteria that supports the business need. Um, education is something that I think easily meets that field because I think that you could clearly state that that would be job related because of it is very important for teachers to be in the same school setting, physical presence as students, you know, besides, you know, putting remote learning beside, it is generally speaking an easy test to meet. Um, the second thing I would make sure um, is that your policies adequately inform employees whatever requirement you impose in clear and certain terms when you're going to require the vaccination by, whether or not there's a certain vaccination that you require. I don't believe that there's precedent to say you're allowed to get Pfizer, but you can't have Johnson & Johnson. So I would be very clear that, you know, assuming that the FDA has approved it, you're allowed to get that vaccination. Um, one other thing that we haven't, I don't believe we touched on yet, is that you have to make sure that there's no impediment to doing that in any union obligations. A lot of schools, charter schools and other public schools have teacher unions. And you want to make sure that any policy that you're creating doesn't violate the collective bargaining agreement that you have. And even if it doesn't, even if it's not addressed, it's just a very, it's good practice, I think, to make sure that you have consensus with the union. Or even if you don't have a union, it's, it's good, I think it's good practice to make sure that you have buy-in from the teachers. For, if you're going, if it's going to be a larger policy a conversation with students, it's also a good idea to have that conversation with the school community. Why are you imposing this policy? What, you know, what is the value in doing so? I think it's always better to educate people and try to get their consensus before you're just putting together a policy. Um, there's always a requirement to allow workers to seek an exemption or an accommodation, either on the basis of a disability, sometimes there are sincerely held religious belief um, that that might change depending on where you are, but all employers are required to engage in what is termed as an interactive process with employees. Uh, where workers have the right to demonstrate the need for a possible exemption 
And then employers can go back and forth and say whether or not they'll grant that exemption. And if they won't grant that exemption, maybe that there's another exemption that they will that they'll both grant. It can't just be you say, you know, the employee says, I don't want to get this, and the employer says, This is the only thing that you could happen, otherwise you're terminated. There has to be some sort of interactive process, a cooperative dialogue, and that's just, you know, something to consider. You had mentioned, just to clarify, that New York State doesn't allow religious exemptions. Does that pertain to students, but not staff? That pertains to students, not directly pertaining to staff, but at the same time, I would allow a staff member to explain to you why or why not they're, you know, if they're not going to get a vaccination why are they not going to get a vaccination? And is, is it a question of when they're going to get it? Are they waiting for a ter- time period? I think you, you you could engage in a process of that. And you mentioned the interactive process. That kind of highlights another question, which is just the process of talking to your employees. What kinds of things do you recommend that an employer can and cannot say around the the whole vaccine mandate and responding, you know, I think there's a lot of employment law that goes around that. There is. And I think it's important that whoever's having this conversation, whether or not it's one person or a subset of people, that that is contained. You want to be clear that, you know, you're not making employment decisions based on a medical in general. um, And you want to also make sure that you're ensuring the privacy of employees' uh, medical information. Um, That's both under the American Disabilities Act um, and HIPAA requires that those two things are separated. So it is okay for employers to ask employees if they've gotten vaccinated or if they haven't gotten vaccinated, if they have a vaccination scheduled and why or why not. There has been some uh, guidance, I think, from the EEOC who has said that type of questioning is not considered to be medical and that's considered to be more job-related, so it's okay to ask for that information. And I believe that, um, just looking at my notes here, uh, Cuomo, um, in one of his executive orders back in February, actually says that teachers that were em- that are employed public and non-public school setting going to grades 12 must report whether or not they've received a COVID vaccination to their school district. And then the school district is required to then report that back up to the Department of Health because they're trying to gauge how many teachers have been um, vaccinated in the efforts to figure out the mitigation strategies for public health in general. So the CDC hasn't said that teacher vaccinations are not a prerequisite for reopening school buildings. It's definitely one of the important criteria that people are looking at. Okay. And then in terms of the EEOC, have they offered any other guidance around vaccination? They have. They are allowing employers to make decisions on vaccinations. It seems like they are, they haven't officially endorsed having a vaccination policy, but they haven't at the same time said that you can't do it. Um, So they basically, they're indicating that their employers should consider different criteria relating against you, ADA accommodations and the liking, making sure that things are fair and reasonable. So I think that the indication and and the CDC is also kind of pushing and saying that this is is not something that they're going to require, but it is something that they seem to be allowing employers to decide on their own. And just as, you know, just, just going back to the teacher question, as a parent myself, I, I'm interested to know, you know, has my teacher been vaccinated or what percentage of the school staff has been vaccinated? I'm, you know, I'm on Department of Health uh, Board of Education meetings, and that's definitely a question that, that parents have. They feel safer knowing 90% of the school staff is vaccinated, 80%, you know, what that is. And that's a question that I've gotten and schools have been asking me, can you share that information with parents? Um, and, you know, 
there the answer is yes, because sharing, sharing that data isn't sharing anybody's personal information. It's an aggregated form of data that you're sharing. It's in the public interest um, and it doesn't violate anybody's privacy. You can't go so far as to say my eighth grade English teacher, my daughter or son's eighth grade English teacher is the person who isn't vaccinated. That goes a step too far. That gives too much information to parents and that discloses information that violates their medical information. But you could certainly say 60% of the staff is violated or 80% of the staff is violated. And do you have recommendations for how that information is kept per employee? You know, is there a specific way that information is required to be held? As you know, as long as it's kept in a manner that's safe and that's not discriminatory, you know, that's non-discriminatory and that's not related to, you know, employees' performance, I don't have particularly, it has to be one way or the other. It just needs to be in a secure setting and that is only accessible for people that need to know that information. And you had mentioned the Los Angeles County School District mandating and, and that there's already some pushback on that. Are there any court cases historically around vaccines um, or immunizations that might come up and, and shed some light on things? Yes, there is. I mean, obviously not relating, at least court cases haven't been ruled explicitly for the COVID-19 vaccination, although I mentioned there was something in Los Angeles and I believe something in, um, I think it's Nevada, or also that, that um, people are challenging the law. But the, the Supreme Court has firmly established that it's within the um, public health to allow states to determine. It's actually a state-by-state state issue. It's not, it's just, that vaccinations are not something that I think lead the federal go- government will ever get into the business of, of mandating on a statewide level. But individual states well, should have the ability to require it. The most famous case that comes to mind is from 1905. Um, there was a Supreme Court case, Jacobson versus the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which says that employers and governments could make a decision to require immunization if they believe it is in the public health Against it is obviously having individual liberty and the decision, the freedom to make those choices. But public health seems to have trumped that. And then what happens if a teacher or staff member asks for an accommodation and the school cannot provide it? I'm sure that's going to be a two-part answer based on, well, there's remote learning now and there likely may not be in the fall. So it might go one direction for the now and in another direction in the future. But do you have any insight into that? I mean, it's certainly something that's coming up already. I don't believe that the fall is going to be a strict switchover. I don't believe that starting the fall, we're going to have no remote learning. I believe that it might be a smaller percentage, but I don't believe that from the way that things are going right now and parents are still concerned, I believe that there's still probably going to be remote learning is still going to be offered in some settings. But it's, it's just, it's, it's a hard conversation and it's a hard thing to say. I think there are going to be some job functions that even if a school is operating in person, you could do remotely. There's definitely some, you know, just financial job functions within a school data that you could probably come do from the confines of, of somebody's home. If for some reason you're not able to get vaccinated and you can't go into the school building, it's a harder argument to make when you're talking about a school teacher. And it's a different conversation to have if you're talking about a high school school teacher versus a kindergarten school teacher. I think that it's pretty clear at this point that you know, the younger children need direct supervision. And if, if there's nobody in that classroom, then generally speaking, a school is going to be required to have some other individual in that classroom just for purposes of supervision. Even if a teacher 
is remote and able to provide instruction over a Google Classroom format, they would still be required to have another individual. And one thing that you look at, one thing that the ADA requires you, you know, allows employees to do is to see whether or not the accommodation, granting the accommodation would impose an undue burden on the employer or the school in the situation. And it's very possible that we get to a point where allowing a number of staff members to work remotely would be too much of a financial hardship for the school to operate. And the accommodation would have to be, you know, rejected, at least the accommodation to work remotely and employment might have to be terminated in that situation. I want to switch back to testing for a minute. And Paul or Jamie can field this one, but in terms of administering COVID-19 testing, can an employer administer a COVID-19 test on site at the school? There's a number of different ways that testing can be done. It can be required um, or can be at least offered at the employment site. But generally, I would also, if for some reason the employee doesn't feel comfortable being tested at that site, I'll provide an alternate location where they could either do it on their own or give them different locations to be tested. It's usually a convenience thing. I don't know why, but if there's a, there might be a reason why people don't want to be tested in front of somebody, but as long as they get tested, I would believe within a time frame established by the employer, then I would be comfortable with that. And school, there's some variety in how schools have approached it. Some schools have entered into a contract with a particular lab that will handle testing. And I think others may have a more hands-on approach, but it's it, there's no shortage of variety in, especially in New York charter schools, because every school is making its own decision about how it wants to handle these issues. And, um, and that's an example. Yeah. Do you advise schools of best practices around that in terms of like, it's best if you do it through a lab or it's best if you allow each person a private setting to do the testing? Is there anything that you all are seeing or you're being asked to advise on? We've been asked to look at a school's policy on testing, and I do just say, just like we were talking about for mandatory, if we're going to do mandatory vaccinations, as long as it's non-discriminatory, it's clear, it's concise, and it gives people information about when testing should happen by, usually it's within a time period, then I think it would be fine. There's, I, don't, I don't have a strong preference for it should be at the site or it should be not at the site. All right, let's switch over to special education now. In terms of special education and how COVID-19 has been impacting special education in New York charter schools, can you share what that impact has looked like and any information you might have that might highlight the direction things are going? Sure. Um, I'll talk about it generally, and then I'll try and tie it to these issues of COVID testing and accommodations and, you know, what it looks like as we try to get more in person and we're, we're grappling with how to serve all kids despite the fact that their needs and their capacities may make it challenging in some cases. So it has been a big challenge all along since, since this time last year to ensure that kids with disabilities are able to access and participate remotely with the appropriate accommodations and support. It's been, been challenging in lots of different ways to do that. In particular, it's difficult to meet the needs of kids wherever they are. Initially, the federal guidance that came out last March encouraged deferring services that were challenging to provide in remotely. So they would say, well, you know, if you if you can provide it in a remote setting, then do. And if it's challenging to do that, then defer those services uh, until when children are back in, in your building. And then we'll make sure that we, we, we take care of it that way. That was probably a more viable approach if this had been a shorter period of remote instruction. But, you know, 
here we are at a year and we're still having our instruction. And so I think a lot of places found that that wasn't an adequate response. And in the in September, the U.S. Department of Education issued some more guidance and said, well, actually, you really kind of got to do what you need to do to provide for these kids. And, and one of the things that they noted was that there are going to be some children whose circumstances really don't allow them to wear a mask or to otherwise participate the way you would expect kids to in in-person instruction with all of the, the protections, the safety protections that we want to have. And their directive in this federal guidance was figure it out, figure out how to do this. And I, and, and I think this is particularly interesting now as people are getting back into in-person circumstances more often. And uh, again, I mentioned before, I talked to an authorizer recently and I talked to another one the other day who said they are hearing that there are schools that are saying, well, if a kid can't wear a mask, then that's a health risk. And if it's a health risk, then they can't be here. And I think that that is the wrong answer. I think that you may find yourself uh, out of sync with federal law if you take the attitude that it's, the, uh, one way to put it is, that's the kid's problem. Well, they can't wear the mask. I guess they can't be here. I think the, the federal government has made it clear that in situations like that, they think that federal law is served by being flexible, which is, you know, flexibility has really been the, the word that defines everything that we've done during the COVID um, circumstance. And I would just caution schools to be careful about taking a sort of exclusionary approach as we try and get everybody back in to fall back on that. Well, it's a health risk. I think, I think that would be a mistake. And, uh, and again, I, I'm hearing from authorizers that, um, that they're hearing that among New York schools. So I don't think this is a hypothetical and I think people should be should be careful about it. Okay. And how are you advising schools? Or and maybe this isn't the area you touch on, but if a school no, says... No, it is. And I, I'm having this exact... I've had this exact conversation with a number of schools and networks where they are finding that certainly you have behavioral issues that are difficult to grapple with under normal circumstances. And these are not normal circumstances. Sometimes what we have are very little children who have behavioral issues or have cognitive issues or other kinds of issues that make it challenging for them, not only to do what you'd like them to do in terms of instruction and behavior, but in terms of keeping a mask on or not, not running over to people and hugging them when you're trying to keep people socially distant. And this is, I don't want to under describe the problem. It's a big problem, but it doesn't have a simple solution. And excluding kids who might present those circumstances by falling back and saying, well, health, we have to protect the health of everybody. So therefore you don't get to get here. That kind of smells like the bad old, old days of special education when we thought it was inconvenient for folks and we weren't going to try and, and, and focus on inclusion. And, and I would caution people against doing that. Okay. So, and talking about inclusion, how do you see the landscape of testing and vaccination requirements for students with disabilities? And uh, what should schools be keeping in mind as they embark on that or policies for that? I'll go back to my word of the COVID experience, which is flexibility. We need to work with parents to find ways to get around practical challenges to having their children tested, for example, uh, and to participate in the school program, as I was just describing before. But certainly true for testing. It's also, I think, very important for schools when things aren't the way they normally are to take really good notes about what it is they are endeavoring to do to support these kids. 
because I think that there's a, a fair amount of flexibility in how they will be judged. You know, I think there'll be some leniency when schools are doing their best to meet the needs of all kids and maybe trying something that's unconventional. Uh, I really think you want to make sure that you are recording what you're doing, recording your attempts to communicate and to get uh, buy-in from parents, for example, in a circumstance that's, that's unusual. Going to be important later if anybody ever says, hey, why did that school do it that way? You can say, hey, well, look, this is, we didn't do nothing. We did this and this and this. And we worked with the family in order to make that happen. I think when we talk about COVID testing, we need to be flexible enough to accommodate special circumstances. And a couple of examples. One, we have students who may need a medical exemption. Now, that may be a little different than a special education exemption, but a medical exemption due to a health condition that would make it unsafe to, let's say, undergo testing. There might be something like... Uh, facial trauma or nasal surgery or something like that. If you're going to use a swab in somebody's nose, maybe that just isn't going to work. So what do we do? We're flexible, right? We're, we're working to find a way to work with that particular child. We're not saying that kid can't come because it doesn't fit our program. That's not a good answer. Another one, kids with disabilities that would fall under an IEP, let's say, or a Section 504 plan. Uh, kids who cannot be safely tested in school due to the nature of their disability. You might be talking about a kid with, a, with social anxieties or other kinds of circumstances that simply won't allow for this. So, so maybe we're flexible and we say that a child can be tested outside the school. You know, that you, you get the report on the test rather than you, that kid participates in your program the way other kids do. It's, just, it's tried to keep saying flexibility, but really in, in a circumstance where we're talking about kids who may present in a great variety of ways, it, it's the only thing that we can do. If we, if, we, if we finally get to that point where we're talking about vaccinations, sometime we will, right? Have to use that same approach. You're going to have the same kind of medical and disability approach uh, circumstances, which make it challenging to have a one-size-fits-all program. You know, schools are good at this. In, an, in the ordinary course, they've come to figure out how to incorporate kids with a variety of conditions. It's just that we can't lose that approach when we, when we get to COVID. Yeah. Yeah, especially when it sounds like, you know, sometimes departments of public health and, and other health officials make things sound as though they can and should be very black and white and they don't sound like they're accounting for shades of gray in there. So it's good for schools to get a good reminder that they can't do that. Um, do you have any, I know we we have focused a lot on sort of the elementary level, I think, of charter schools. Do you have any parting words for high schools or colleges? Well, I think most of what we've talked about K to 12 in a sense, but the current testing uh, regimes and the vaccination are, are workable for kids who are 16 and older. So you can, you can be someone who receives a vaccine now and, and high schools are already grappling with that. There's, as you'd have to go back through all the different things we talked about to talk about, you know, is it, is it something you can require or is it something that's happening is it something that's developing, but certainly kids 16 and up can get the uh, vaccination, whether or not they can physically actually access that right now in New York State. I don't believe they can, but you know, the president is telling us that everybody's going to be eligible to be vaccinated very soon. And I'm sure whenever anybody hears this, they'll be even further along on that. My understanding, and I don't claim to be a health expert, is that um, some of these vaccines are being proved valid for younger kids, you know, down to 12, for example. But I think as the weeks go on, we're going to hear more and more. The likelihood is that kids are going to be eligible for these tests. And then we're going to move into questions of can we require those tests? Do we want to require those tests? What's that going to look like? 
Um, so that's that's more going to be a high school thing uh, uh, until it's a middle school and an elementary thing. And just a couple of words about college, because colleges are not what we focus on the most. But, you know, I think it may be worth noting as an example of the variety that we're likely to see on all levels. Some colleges are saying that they're not going to require um, uh, mandatory vaccinations. SUNY has come out and said that it doesn't think it needs to do that, that people have other incentives to get vaccinated and that they think that, you know, that's going to take care of it. They don't want to get into the fight over that. Rutgers is saying the opposite. Rutgers is saying you have to get vaccinated if you want to come back in person in the fall. And I think that those are two extreme ends of what we're going to see. Um, and, uh, and I would imagine that people are going to come down in the middle, but more and more variety, more and more flexibility, all these, all these kind of words that suggest that we don't have a uniform plan the way we used to, but we're moving back towards it. So, so I think that's, I think, all we really want to cover. And uh, I think we just want to say, please check back in here because we're going to continue to offer guidance to folks as these issues continue to evolve. I mean, I think there's almost nothing that we covered today that isn't going to be a bit different in a month you know, for two months, or three months, we're not at a place where it's on stable ground. So I think people have to keep double checking on what the rules are and whether what they're doing will work. Uh, Jamie, do you have any uh, final, final words of advice? No, I think just to echo Paul's point, I think flexibility is key. Staying abreast of recent developments is important. And, you know, being mindful of what the local, the local health department keeps switching. I mean, the fact that New York went from you know, eligibility of 50 to 30 to 16, I think in a matter of, you know, weeks, if maybe in a month, I think that the age of vaccinations available is going to go lower. I mean, they're already testing elementary school children's and clinical trials right now. I think Dr. Fauci has, has mentioned that he doesn't believe that vaccinations will be available for elementary school children's this calendar year, but I mean, 2022 is not, is not very far away. So definitely keep up to date and keep posted. And uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time. And thanks for having us today. Yeah, thank you both very much. And um, as Paul and Jamie, just to echo their sentiment that things are always changing, if you're listening, please be sure to check in on our website for more podcasts on the topic. Um, we also write client alerts and blog posts that cover this material, and you can find specific details written if you want to take some more time to go over it. Um, and we will make sure to keep everybody updated. Um, as quickly as the news comes out. So thank you both for joining me today. I appreciate it. And I look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks. Thank you. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman serves clients throughout the Northeast with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York, offering legal services in a wide variety of matters, including medical and other professional liability defense, premises liability and business litigation, education law, employment, family law, insurance coverage, trust and estates, criminal defense, corporate formation, and intellectual property. The firm and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including best lawyers, best law firms, best places to work Rhode Island, 
Outstanding Philanthropic Business, the Common Good Award, and Super Lawyers. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit our website at www.bglaw.com or call us toll-free at 888-273-9903.